Welcome to Educational Alpha. Kaya CEO and host Bill Kelly brings you on-the-ground conversations with business leaders, educators, coaches, and industry colleagues from around the globe. In this episode, Bill catches up with Robert Rubenstein, social entrepreneur and driving force behind TBLI Capital, the world's leading impact investing authority and network focused on education, advising, and connecting investors. Listen in and hear what Robert means when he says, I have full confidence in the greed of people. Welcome to the latest edition of Educational Alpha, where the investor's edge starts with informed consent. I'm your host, Bill Kelly, and today I'm joined by Robert Rubenstein. Robert, good to see you again. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, so uh, we want to get to the educational alpha and the edge, but uh, but when I start these discussions, and I've known you a long time, Robert, I'm not even sure if we've actually met, though. Uh, I feel like no, we, we... No, virtually only. Yes, I participate in your platforms. I want to talk about this uh, a better prize day, too. But uh, maybe a, a little bit of your history, because you are a kid from Brooklyn, and you wandered pretty far afield of Brooklyn. And I think one thing you asked me to participate in was either Thanksgiving Day or the day after Thanksgiving. And you were so far away from American norms, you forgot it was Thanksgiving weekend. So, so maybe uh, how did you get from Brooklyn to Amsterdam and everywhere else in between? I think your journey would be the place to start. Originally, I wanted to be an assistant district attorney focusing on organized crime. I was fascinated by the mafia. But after finishing college, I didn't want to do three years of law school. So I just left in 1974 to just go traveling to Burma or Myanmar at the time. It took me a lot longer to get there. It took, you know, decades later, and I finally did get there. But I always, uh, my parents were European. They didn't even speak English to each other. They only spoke French to each other. So we were raised pretty European. So when I was traveling in Europe, I felt more at home uh, over there. And I just, my career was more of a pinball machine. I, you know, I worked on uh, oil rigs in, in Iran, in the North Sea, in Texas, did a lot of different jobs. But I always liked Amsterdam. I always liked the quality of life in Amsterdam. So I stay, I kind of stayed there for the last, you know, 40 plus years and just did a lot of different things. And I started the first bicycle magazine in the Netherlands, which was a spiritual and financial success. And the other magazines were only spiritual success and financial disasters. But the last one was the first European management magazine on sustainability. And when the investors pulled the plug while we were on holiday, I still wanted to create an economy based upon well-being but I figured I need the corporate sector on board and they would only respond to pain. So I looked at which pain button I could press, finance, personnel, reputation. And I chose finance because the concentration of wealth then, you know, almost 30 some odd years ago, and now is about equal, um, the, the amounts are larger. And I just started doing our events to help change the financial system so it worked for all stakeholders by educating those asset owners and managers. And we were very good at, at educating and bringing state-of-the-art content, and we still are. So that was, it wasn't, I didn't leave to come here to do TBLI. It was a kind of a series of circumstances. And I was pretty good at the, the chess game of publishing, how that, you know, uh, 
worked. Uh, but I, I, I found that uh, focusing on the financial sector means I only need to influence a relatively small number of people, whereas focusing on the non-financial sector and corporate, you have to start trying to get through to many, many people. So that's kind of my journey. And we've been, I've been doing TBLI now for over 25 years. It's gotten a lot easier. Uh, it was much more challenging trying to convince the alpha males and females that sustainable investing or extra financial issues were relevant to them. Now more and more are starting to take it more seriously, but unfortunately the ones doing the most talk the least and the ones doing the least talk the most. So you have to choose your battles carefully on with whom will you engage. Well, and, uh, and I can see threads of that background as to how you got to where you are, because it seems like you've been close to the environment and the Netherlands is a country that uh, I think has, has gotten it right more so than many other parts of the world. But I think, uh, Robert, we often look at this generation coming up, and I know your son uh, works with you. I've got five kids who are probably about the same age as, as your son, and you and I are roughly the same age. Maybe you have a couple of years on me. But it's interesting to note, love him or hate him, Richard Nixon created the EPA. And that was all the way back in 1970. So here we are almost 55 years later, and we're still trying to uh, figure out where we are and how we're going to make the world a better place. And the climate uh, has its own agenda. Uh, and we don't seem to be making the progress we'd like to be making, at least from my perspective. How are we doing from a progress standpoint and how optimistic or pessimistic are you? I have full confidence in the greed of people. I just am concerned that they're not really getting it quick enough. So I, I think we're going to have very rough times. The, the real challenge why it's taken so long is you have some entrenched interests that are very happy doing this with the pipeline and just you know let more oil flow because they can get their bonuses and their targets. It's, it's very easy. You know, it's not a big deal. I worked on oil rigs. I know what it is to actually make a hole in the ground. And once you've got that and, you know, pulling it up is, is not a big deal. And, you know, you, you get your, your bonuses and you're compensated by your institutional investors. The main issue is that nobody in positions of power is really suffering from climate. And nobody, you know, some small islands in, in the South Pacific are disappearing but the, one, the, in, the ones that actually have the influence and the power and the money, they're not suffering, not yet. Uh, there are some inconveniences. Maybe the power went out or the roads got washed away so they can't get to the studio in California. But until people really face uh, excruciating pain from the direction they're pursuing, they're not going to deviate much. And it's also what we found over the years. It's really not that hard to convince someone about the, the environmental, social governance risk. The, the challenge has always been access because the more money and influence someone has, the more isolated they are. So the challenge was not the convincing. The challenge was the access. I don't think that we've made the progress. I mean, if you go to YouTube and you look up a film made by Frank Capra called Unchained Goddess, 
It's quite shocking when you look at this. This was made in the, I think, the late 40s, 40s or 50s. I mean, it was, it was made for Bell Labs for, as an educational tool about climate. I mean, the guy is talking exactly about climate risk, sea oceans, you know, sea rising, etc., and made such a long time ago and saying the same thing, graphics are not as hip as they are now. But nothing really done. We've known about this. The oil companies have known about this for a long, long time. But until we feel the pain of climate, not much is going to happen. And the pain has not been that excruciating. It's been tough sometimes, but it hasn't been this continuous destruction all year long and of you know, people in positions of power whose houses are, are disappearing. So that's really the, you know, the issue. Until those really feel the pain, most are managing. And some of the billionaires says the, the way we deal with it is we build a rocket ship to Mars so we can get the hell out of here and start all over. So I'm not optimistic. Uh, if you, even if you look at the climate tech funds, which have gotten tens of billions of dollars, TPG, Generation, General Atlantic. I mean, it's incredible. Billions and billions and billions. Not one of all of those mega funds and the other funds of 100 million, 200 million, not one is allocating a single penny to the cheapest, quickest, fastest, most effective, longest solution to climate change, which is restoring the health of the soil, regenerative agriculture. There's nothing cheaper, faster that even comes close, but none of them are putting money in there. So when I see, finally, we got some money coming in, and what are they putting it in? Into a machine to suck CO2 out of the air. It's like taking a thimble to the Pacific Ocean and scooping a bit out, and then I'm going to move it. But it's, it's still the, the mindset of unicorn hunters, unicorn chasing unicorns. And not really, you know, we can fix this. It's not, it's not that hard. You don't need really super advanced technology. I mean, uh, Pro Professor Ratan Lal talks of 330 gigaton drawdown, which is a 155 parts per million. That's a lot. But nobody's touching this on, on the investment side because it's not developing the unicorn. So it, it is a frustration. But at the same time, there's a lot of activity going in the other direction, people are realizing that climate is a risk. And as carbon, the price of carbon keeps going up, the industry can adapt. We have a very silly system that if I buy a bicycle in Europe, maybe not in the US, a bicycle in Europe, there's 21 to 25% sales tax. If I buy an airline ticket, there's no sales tax, zero, anywhere in the world, no sales tax and no tax on kerosene for airplanes. So this industry gets hundreds of billions in indirect subsidies, and they still lose money many of the times. You know, make, have prices reflect the true cost, and you know, things will work out. But until that time, it will always remain very a challenge for investors and companies uh, trying to do the right thing. There's uh, so much there, and I want to focus on the not yet uh, that you said, and then how do we get from not yet to now? And you know, I think about short-term nature of humanity, and maybe even more so Americans. And I look at COVID as an example. Uh, 
It brought the world to its knees, shut everything down literally overnight. And then most of us turned to the sovereign and said, you better fix this. And the sovereign did. And I think it gives us a false sense of comfort that the sovereign can fix uh, anything when we're at the brink of disaster. And then now, if I look at the state of affairs in Washington, D.C., we're going to be suffering from gridlock certainly for the next two years. It may even push the uh, the sovereign uh, debt over the edge in terms of this uh, the, the cap of, of spending. But then these politicians are elected for the short term. So they don't have the political will to do anything other than get reelected uh, the next time around. And then maybe to make it even more complicated, and somehow there's going to be a question in here, nationalism has taken hold. And the relationship between right now the U.S. and China, the U.S. and Russia, is probably as bad as we've seen uh, in decades. And this has got to be a global cooperation because if, uh, if Amsterdam and the Netherlands get it all right, but India, Russia, the Americans sort of thumb their nose, there's one environment, one ozone layer, and, uh, and it's going to end badly. So uh, maybe to bring that away from a statement to a question, is there a sea change that gets us from not yet to now? Yes. I mean, the uh, as horrible as the war is in Ukraine, and it is really horrible and, and really heart-wrenching, it has done a lot of good things. It's for the first time people start to see, hey, my energy bill is high. I got to start fixing up the house and, and insulating, and I have to start using much less heat and power. Uh, so that was, nobody worried about that before. All of a sudden, oh, wow. And when I see it, you know, whether it's a financial crisis or COVID or the war, governments can act real fast when they want to. Every time they say, we have no money for this, we have no money for this. All of a sudden there was money for, for everybody giving free, maybe four or five injections, uh, vaccinations. Uh, we have no money for this. Oh, let's start switching to our own LNG. Let's go to green hydrogen and very fast when they want to. So the war has also unified Europe, has strengthened NATO, have also moved people away from the dependence on uh, Russian gas, has been a disaster for, the, for Putin and the, and the oligarchs. Yes, there's lots and lots of challenges going forward, but at the same time, you can see that things can get done when the will is there or when government needs to act. It can. I mean, when the financial sector was collapsing you know, years ago, it, <laughs> the government that was uh, bailing it out. So when everybody says, well, you need small government and that, no, no, we need a government that can actually function and is well-funded and is not constantly having to borrow money. Probably, I guess, you know, if, you, if people actually paid a minimum tax, whatever that tax would be, probably the stock market would go up so their assets would actually go up in, in value. And on that level, I'm quite impressed to see that people can move quickly. I'm sorry that the Prime Minister of New Zealand said I had enough because she was doing a wonderful job. But I was really quite impressed. I mean, it was really dark when COVID hit and all 
all the streets were empty and stores were going bankrupt, restaurants were going bankrupt, and the government in each country stepped in and took charge and got most people vaccinated and got us back to where we are. And yeah, there were some nutcases saying that the government is trying to inject you know, these devices in your arms to track you and that. But, the, you know, that's that's a small uh, minority. I'm, you know, I wouldn't want to have the job. I mean, I think it's a really, really tough job. So I'm impressed that government's proven they can do something, but getting an agreement on climate where it's very simple, that whether there's a carbon tax the price of, of uh, things that are carbon intensive will be high, so got, industry will adapt. They're already moving in that direction. I see a lot of positive things. It's just we're not going faster than the music, and the music is still quite slow, and it'll be much tougher going forward on many, many levels, whether it's the war or that. And... Um, but particularly on on climate, and it'll you know it'll get colder, it'll get hotter, and that, and we should not having any discussion at all about you know that climate change is a fraud, or that it's fake news. You know that's that's such a wasted energy that we have that. And yes, there's lots of industries that will lose, but many many others will gain. And in the long term, if we look at, you know, the, the war has made energy expensive and then all of a sudden the price went down because we started to be much more efficient and saving. And, you know, I mean, is it a big sacrifice where people are getting killed for you to put on a sweater in, in the house? That's, we're not asking a lot. So I'm optimistic long term. I'm a bit pessimistic in the short term. Are we going to get our act together fast enough because if I see the actual, not the documents that are being signed, not the declarations that are being signed, every week another one, the actual money going to short-term climate solutions, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing lots of people talking about it and we're all doing selfies and toasting champagne and doing this and giving each other a, a big hug. I, I would prefer that we fight each, with each other much more and saw really serious checks going in this direction because the solutions are there. It's not, it's not hard. And I, I think an important takeaway from all that, Robert, is that uh, we as individuals can make a difference. And uh, a lot is talked about around scope three admissions and nobody wants to own them. They belong to the supply chain. You and I are that last mile. So it can be a grassroots effort. So maybe this is a good place uh, to wrap up because you've been a champion of grassroots efforts. Uh, you've got a very small and merry band with a very wide reach. And I've seen some of the folks you've had on some of your platforms and I'm just blown away by the power of your voice. And you've asked me to be part of the jury of this uh, a Better World Prize where it may be not the big index providers. We need to have... Folks that can help us understand how to better measure, better disclose. And, and we I guess we, there was a good prize day. We've got to the better and we eventually have to find the best. But uh, how are you doing on that front? And I applaud you for the work you're doing there. It was always a frustration that the, 
the ESG data providers and the frameworks never wanted to be on a panel together with their so-called competitors, and they never wanted the full transparency. They wanted to kind of control the dialogue. So when we launched that of a People's Choice Award and inviting everybody to come, and we got 44 independent ESG measurements, some of them really brilliant solutions, very, very brilliant solutions. And, but unfortunately, we got 100% failure or success rate, depending on how you look at it, of every one of the major uh, service uh, providers and frameworks, uh, you know, MSCI, ISS, Sustainalytics, PRI, CDP, all of them refuse to speak. And anybody who says to me, oh, you never contacted me. You, I can show you this. I started seven months ago before we started with PRI, with speaking to the chairman and asking the chairman to help push this through. Oh, yeah, we'll get you in touch with the new CEO. Never heard from them. So people are busy. You're busy. You're taking time to do things. We're all busy. But it's a question of, is this important to you? Now we have a first open source library of all the different measurement systems, and we're going to be pushing that out also to our vast network of family offices to start using that freely. And hopefully that pressure and the winner of the best uh, methodology or the winner of the worst methodology will uh, mobilize others to use this, you know, because uh, hiding you know, or not participating is also a statement. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, and I think that's maybe a, uh, a good place uh, to leave it. Uh, a great story, Robert. Uh, great talking to you. And uh, please keep up uh, the very good work. You're not alone. And the grassroots eventually will turn into a cause and hopefully a solution. Thank you. It's a joy. And I appreciate all of your help. You've been incredibly supportive. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Please join us in the next segment of Educational Alpha as we look to always put the investor first through transparency, education, and informed consent. Mm-hmm.